0: I'm Anne, co-host of Transparency in Teaching, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the Black and Brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement.
0: The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism, and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lissette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts.
1: And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. So we are so excited today uh, for our podcast episode. We have a very special guest, uh, Monica Guzman. Uh, who is a senior fellow, or who is senior fellow for public practice at uh, Braver Angels, which is a nonprofit working to depolarize America? Also, founder and CEO of Reclaim Curiosity, an organization working to build a more curious world, and of course, uh, a nationally world-renowned. Uh, author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly uh, Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Glenn Beck Podcast. I was just watching that this morning. Uh, Reader's Digest, Book TV, and Econ Talk. And she's an advisor for Starts With Us and Generations Over Dinner Project. Um, So, Monica, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Uh, We are just uh, really excited to have you um, and to talk some more with you about your book, of course, but about all of the many different uh, things that you are uh, doing uh, at this point. Um, So uh, why don't we start with just, um, you know, your book has been out for about a year now. You, You know, you mentioned you've done lots of interviews, you've done talks for it, What has been perhaps most surprising about uh, people's reaction to this book and and some of the reactions you've gotten uh, on on the tour?
2: Honestly, I think the most surprising thing has been that really, truly, across the political divide, people do want to believe that there's a way out of this brokenness. I don't know why. I, I held a lot of assumptions about maybe the more you know, extreme ends of our partisan spectrum holding so much resistance maybe to the idea of crossing that divide for any reason that I thought there would be some bad, you know, bad moments and, and maybe even some hostility. And I would understand where it would come from. So that, that by far has been the biggest surprise. If I'm, you know, in front of conservatives, libertarians, um, you know, progressives, but even on the far left, there's, there's not always total acceptance of everything. That's not the point or everything I'm saying, but there's definitely a desire to unlock some of what feels locked. Mm. Uh, and and that's been awesome. And I also, I don't know that I expected to hear from so many folks across the political divide, you know, even, even saying or agreeing this can't go on. This this division, this brokenness, just cannot go on. So to hear everyone from from Glenn Beck to you know far left progressive activists uh, say that and and then ask the question, what do we do, is really encouraging.
0: Yeah, you know we have done a lot of. Um, I think we've covered a lot of content, Maurice, with like the black brown divide because that's something that we often don't like to talk about. Um, but when I first heard of your book. First of all, my maiden name is Guzman. I don't know if this is your maiden name or your... <laughs> it is my maiden
2: name. Yes!
0: Yeah. Hey! So, so, I, I thought oh my there was gosh. an incident connection there. Um, but I think Maurice and I, you know, share that sentiment of like, this isn't working. We're hungry for some of this unity. Let's, you know, build together. And I have always prided myself as being someone who... engage in conversations with people who have vastly different views than myself and I I even have friends that are like why do you even waste your time like why do you even bother talking to them and I'm like I'm just curious and I will listen to to everyone Um, but what has been your experience with this like what was the inspiration and you know like can you tell us a little bit more about how like your identity perhaps shaped you writing this book
2: Yeah. So I am a Latina. I'm a Mexican immigrant. I came over with my parents and my brother from Mexico when I was about five and a half, six years old. Mm -hmm. And then in the year 2000, my parents took the citizenship test and became citizens. And they immediately became Republicans. And I, having never thought about my political identity very deeply, was just like automatically a Democrat. And and I looked at my parents going, you, why are you not Democrats? This is so weird. And mm-hmm. a bunch of things sort of made sense. You know, in the 90s, we would argue about welfare. We would have all these different ideas. They're definitely more socially conservative than I am. So the identity that ended up inspiring me to write this book was, and I don't think I've ever said it quite this way before, but let's see, that I am the loving liberal daughter of conservative parents. And that something about that is becoming rare. And some people even think maybe just shouldn't be. You're loving conservative rel- relative of liberals, loving liberal relative of conserv. What? No. If you <laughs> if you are yeah. a good liberal, a good conservative, you're supposed to be a very conflicted relative.
1: <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So
2: there's some of those messages. I live in Seattle, which is a deeply democratic, progressive blue place. And I'm a journalist. So the other part of my identity that matters deeply to me is journalist. So as a journalist, I think curiosity is a core virtue that our democratic republic relies on, that we have to have the doors open to different ideas, otherwise it all falls apart. We're going through a period of time where that's become increasingly difficult for a lot of people for a lot of good reasons. So it's a really turbulent, anxious time and people don't want difference they want sameness because there's enough fear out there and there's enough discomfort and there's enough stress and who wants to add to it. But as a journalist, what matters most to me is helping people understand each other. And I got to a point where it seemed like I can tell the most responsible reported stories about people into these media outlets, but it's not going to be enough because of this fundamental division and fundamental brokenness. And when I talked about my parents here in Seattle, or when I heard people describe Trump voters here in Seattle, I heard the level of dehumanization that finally implicated me because I said, those are my parents, and that's not who they are. You're not seeing them. They're not seeing you either, by the way, but you're not seeing them. And we need to know, we need a world that sees itself fast. that's That's
1: that's that's really, really powerful. Um, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, um, I, cause you, you said something that really kind of resonated with me. Uh, I've thought about, um, my mother uh, and I'm in a, so I'm in an interracial marriage at this point, it's almost 16 years. Right. Mm. Um, but my mother had made a statement to me at one point that I could never be a real black man without a real black woman. And, and, um, when I gave her the opportunity to correct it some years later, she kind of stayed by it. And, and so I, I, I think about that because I, I, I think about what happens when someone you love dearly, who has been a, a, a critical part of, of making you who you are, when you all don't see eye to eye, right? And, and so that's, you talk about that, that being in that place, um, and it's interesting. I often feel that I'm the the liberal Christian friend to all of my other pastor friends, right? So, mm. so I'm I'm the most liberal to them. So, with all of that being said, I wanna I wanna just kind of think a little bit more, particularly about that parent piece. You you wrote the book. Has the book helped you and your parents engage in some of those conversations, or was it vice versa that you and your parents figured out how to engage in conversations mm. and then you put that in the book?
2: Mm. Oh, what a great question. A little bit of both, but it's been really neat to see how the fact that they have a daughter who is swimming in this space <laughs> means that so many of our conversations were bringing that right to bear. They've come to a lot of my you know, book talks. They watch a lot of the things that I'm doing out there that are recorded. But there were lots of things that, as I was writing the book, motivated me to say, I know this works because I've done it. I have lots in the book about other people, lots of research, lots of anecdotes, you know, where you can see certain principles that have been around for a long time and come from, you know, philosophy and spirituality and psychology and sociology. But I remember, you know, once I knew I was writing the book, I just asked my mom point blank one day, like, mom, why do you think you and I can do this? Like, why do you think we had that three-hour conversation on race and policing the other day when we like yelled at each other but but stayed in conversation Why, why do you think that could happen and she said oh it's easy it's that we acknowledge each other's good points so for her you know that tip was just super simple and it's true ever since I was little when I would argue with my mom she always had the ability to say even if she was pretty animated and passionate if I said something that made sense to her she would go oh yeah good point yeah, that's a good point. And so I did that back to her. And I think we grew up being secure in our ability to do that. And meanwhile, I think a lot of folks feel that they're giving something up when they acknowledge good points uh, in the other person. So that's just one example.
0: Well, you're so spot on because it's like we've adopted this all or nothing.
2: Right, it's
0: like you either agree with me on all of these points, or else we just can't be friends anymore. We've become so absolutist. Um, and you know, number one, I commend you for your courage in a sense because I I don't know that I would be able to put my parents out there like that. Yeah. Um, but I'm so curious, and I I think the listeners will be too. Like, why? Why? Were your parents supportive of Trump? And I, I'm i just going to give you kind of some of the things that we've talked about. You know, Latinos are not a monolith. And I have said time and time again, Catholicism and Christianity still have a, a stronghold in our community. And I think that if Republicans were nicer, there would be more Republican Latinos. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but that's something that we're just great to acknowledge. So what was it for your parents, though, about Trump? that because my parents loved Reagan and I'm like mom Reaganomics but it's because of the amnesty so I'm just curious
2: yeah and I, I go into this in the book a bit and I have asked my parents hey do I have your permission to speak about your beliefs and they're like yeah because we we see the value in that um sure. and, I, and I saw the value in that in Seattle you know when I would mm-hmm. when I would even say in certain gatherings um my parents are Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump in 2017 and just watched the conversation like drop and all eyes on me, you know? So I, mm. I, I know the value and the people would come and ask me why. And I would carefully try to give some of those reasons. Um, so for my dad and for my mom, the reasons are different for my mom. A lot of it has to do with how much she cares about the issue of abortion. So you might know Mexican Catholicism uh, and, and the kind of Mexican moral family culture Uh, is one that's not very friendly at least traditionally to abortion Mm -hmm. so she she grew up in that and so did i by the way i was devoutly catholic growing up um Mm -hmm. and went to a catholic school and everything so for her you could put a such a devil on the side on one side but if the other side wants to murder babies that's the worst devil uh now i I don't you know some people say well oh she's so she's just a one issue voter, and that's it. No, she's also socially conservative there's there's well, it's funny, she takes like quizzes, you know, and sometimes <laughs> she takes quizzes online, and I remember one recently one quiz online showed her to be a lot more moderate than she thought she was, and she was like, "What is this? you know, so who knows <laughs> mm-hmm. but um yeah, so that that's a big, deep issue for her, and she's often agreed with Republicans on a lot of policies. And then for my dad, for my dad, it's more about Trump. For my mom, it's more about Republicanism. And and mm-hmm. and like, there's only two choices, really, it feels like for her in a presidential election. So she'll go for the Republican. For my dad, he actually really does admire and like Trump. Um, and he admires that he will break rules if he thinks that it's better for the overall goal. He and I talked about how He watched the show House years Mm. ago. The show House is about this diagnostician doctor. Yeah, you're you're familiar. And he's a jerk. He's a total jerk. Everyone who works with him absolutely hates him. He treats people like crap. But it's all in the name of saving the patients. Even when the rest of the hospital, the bureaucracy, the systems, he doesn't care if he needs to rebel against all the people around him. If It's about solving the puzzle. He's a broken person. You know, he's not... House is not a perfect person. He's a mean guy. So my dad sees a lot of parallels between Trump Mm. and House. He looks at our political system and he goes, we need a grenade to come in here and just blow it up and start over because there's so much lying. Politicians spin everything. You know, they say they're being truthful, but they're always talking out of two sides of their mouth. They hardly ever say what they mean. And Trump, I'll hand it to him. Just says what he means. So... (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, I can see my dad. I never like, thought of it that why. way. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know, like he, Yo. you may not like it at all, and it may be pretty awful, but he'll say what he means. Um, and my dad really likes that. It has it has led him to trust Trump in a really deep way that's been interesting for me to explore.
1: So, so one of the things that's really intriguing about that, I, I, two pieces, I, I really want to come back and touch on the abortion piece, but I got to do this other piece first one of the things that's really interesting is when you talk about right there is this feeling of like we need somebody to come in and blow the system up and that's on the conservative side but if you think about the liberal side there are people who say we have to deconstruct right so when we say defund the police what 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 people mean is is that that's a system that needs to be completely blown up and and now, all of a sudden, if you'd actually listen to one another, you'd realize you both are saying, sure. "We need. We need to start this over. We we got to do better in designing the system." And so, and so, you, there's actually a major point of agreement, <laughs> right? Um, that does not benefit any of the major power brokers, right? If you're saying I have power currently, and you want to try to recon- rather conservative or liberal, you want to try to reconstruct it, that doesn't you know, uh, work for me. So it actually works for me better if you all continue to argue instead of see. So anyways, that that's oh. a really interesting point. I've never it's thought of it. Divide
0: and
2: conquer, yeah. You are singing that song. Yes, when you when you made the point about defund the police being part of that, I'd never thought of it that way. I talk in the book about how any time that you think I never thought of it that way, that's a real illumination in a conversation. So we are just bringing them on today. But you're yeah. absolutely right. People talk about something called the horseshoe theory of politics, which is, you know, that the ends that seem so far apart tend to bend toward each other. And so you're right. There's a sense of, you know, just tear it all down and start over on the far left and the far right. Why? Because on both ends, people have very valid concerns about being left out and being forgotten. And so what, what happens is each side sees that, you know, in themselves, but not the other side. And that only gets worse and worse the more that we decide that we can't engage. And so then we get into this vicious cycle where we judge each other more while engaging each other less, which means that our signals about what is going on on the other side are coming from media that is increasingly partisan and fractured. We can't trust that all the way, right? We should be checking the signals we get from our media with real life conversations with real people. And, mm-hmm. and we're doing that less and less and we're breaking our relationships across difference. You know, we're not going to Thanksgiving anymore. I don't wanna to go to aunt so-and-so's house cause they're vaccinated or cause they're not vaccinated. <laughs> And so that's what we're doing to ourselves. And um, you're absolutely right. There are people in power who love this. They love Mm -hmm. that we're at each other's throats. There's systems in place that can capitalize on that and leverage that. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's burying all of us. And a lot of us are cheering it along.
0: Yeah. You know, you, you brought up the media you had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with probably one of the most prominent conservative figures, Glenn Beck. Um, first, I'm just going to acknowledge the high blood pressure he would give me anytime I heard his show. You know, I just, oh, but. Number one, kudos to you for sitting down and having that conversation. Can you tell us what that was like? And did you receive any pushback perhaps from from some of your more liberal friends?
2: Yeah, most of the pushback I received was from myself. I was mm-hmm. sort of at war with myself about, not about the principle of having the conversation. I knew I, I wanted to do it. I knew I needed to do it. But to give an example of what was going through my head and how it affected my behavior, I knew that that was a big appearance you know i'm got a book out i care deeply about these ideas and i did not want to put it on social media i was really afraid of what people Mm -hmm. would say just that i had talked to this guy Mm -hmm. so i didn't do it for for a while and when i finally did it it was one of those like saturdays where i sit Mm -hmm. there and i really think about it and it took longer than it needed to take for me to just write a post about glenn beck and the fact that i was on there how will i do it you know like oh my gosh and yeah so there was a lot of agony within myself pushback from from liberals i mean i'm sure it existed inside people's minds like i can't believe she did that i didn't hear it no no none of my liberal friends and i have many came up and said that was wrong uh, mm-hmm. but as you probably know, I mean, well, I think Maurice, you may have, you may have seen the episode. We didn't argue about the content of politics in that episode. Um, instead, you know, Glenn had reached out to talk to me because he, he also cares about this. You asked about what surprised me about this whole process. And it's that people who appear and are quite partisan and are willing to go to many lengths, right. To mm-hmm. argue their side, you know, noble and not, um, at least perceived by the outside, you know, that he it was very clear to me in that conversation that he really means it. He really wants the climate to be better. There were a couple things he said that I was like trying to suppress a jaw drop in the during the podcast. And mm-hmm. one of them was when he was reflecting on his own role as a popular commentator. And he was saying, I, I try to tell people, don't just take my opinion as yours do your own thinking, do your own research. That's not what you should be doing. So he was sharing that very human aspect of being a commentator. In my head, a commentator wants the blind followers. Yeah, He doesn't. And I'd never seen that. I'd never seen anyone admit that. So that was eye-opening to me. Um, And it made sense knowing what I know about more conservative values. Uh, Conservatives care deeply about individual liberty and individual thought. so I was like, oh yeah, you know. So there were moments like that, a couple of really illuminating moments. Um, but had we, you know, had he asked me to to start arguing about some political issue, I don't know what I would have done. Because I'm not mm-hmm. out here to do that. I'm sure. not. That's not what I'm doing. You know. Te gusta nuestro contenido?
0: Síguenos en YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok y Facebook.
1: What she said. Yeah, I think that's I think that's um I think that's one of the powerful things right about your book and and even the work that you are doing with the multiple organizations that you're a part of is that um, while it, it it I think someone could look at it and say okay that maybe that person has a more liberal perspective the the work that's being centered here is actually conversation it's right. it's curiosity right it's not It's not a political uh, agenda. And so, you know, you talked um, as well uh, with a I think he was a moral psychologist um, just about when it is appropriate to engage or not engage with somebody. And his argument basically was it's always appropriate to engage with somebody. Um, So we we had an episode uh, earlier in in our podcast in which we. Um talked with a guy who worked for an organization called Life After Hate, in which they worked with people who were former um, you know, right. members, or yeah, I mean, you know, these these neo-Nazis and and through conversation, right, they were able to kind of really get to this place where it was like, Yeah, tell me why do you feel that way about black people? Mm. Like, and no one had really ever asked them that, you know. Um Yep. If for our listeners who are sitting here, maybe they haven't read the book yet. Um, w- what are some things that that folks can do today to to really begin to try to practice this? One thing, folks, is you can buy the book. Okay, mm-hmm. Lissette, can you put the book up one more time? Buy the book, and then this is just she's just going to give you a piece of this for free. Okay, but buy the book. Show her some support, some <laughs> love. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what's, what's something that somebody listening to this podcast to walk away today and be like, okay, I'm going to change how I do this in my conversations.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a great question. So I'll, I'll try to give some top level things and we can dig in or, or get more as you want. So one thing is that you don't even have to have a conversation with another person to grow your curiosity muscle and your capacity to see more clearly across the divide. One thing you could do if you really feel you're not ready for that, totally fine. Uh, What I say is that, you know, curiosity is about incremental changes. You know, one more thing, one more question. All you need makes a difference. You could, next time you come across an article, headline that represents a popular perspective that you do not share and might be really angry about, Open that article, and instead of reading it as you might have been reading it before, where you look for ammo, or you look for affirmation of how horrible the people are who believe this thing and how they must be just motivated by so much malevolence, um, keep in mind, you know, a couple of things. One is a pernicious assumption that we tend to make in our political culture, which is this, that if the other person opposes what I support, It must be because they hate what I love. That's a deeply powerful assumption that allows us to paint the other side in in really bad light. But as you read the article, ask yourself two questions. One, ask yourself, what deep down honest concerns is this person sharing? What deep down honest concerns animate what they're writing? Now, it'll be tough because maybe you're hearing a lot of anger But anger is data. Anger is information. Uh, To quote a wonderful author, Valerie Cower, anger is a force that protects that which is loved. So don't be derailed by anger away from curiosity. Use it. When you see anger, it's because someone has reached the end of their rope on this one thing they really care about. So treat it that way and keep going. Keep looking underneath for those deep down honest concerns. And the second question is, what is the strongest argument on this side? What is the strongest argument? Because there is one. There is one. you know, and it might be stronger than we give it credit for, and it might be more motivating than we give it credit for. So that's that's the thing you can do to build your muscle even without putting yourself at risk uh, in that vulnerable place of actually speaking to another person. If you are speaking to another person. Um, the main question to hold in your mind uh, is what am I missing? What am I missing? So what am I missing? that question, presupposes something, which is that you're missing something. When you, when you go across the divide, you're probably, as a citizen of this world, you're probably carrying a lot of judgments and assumptions that may not apply at all to this one human, this one person and individual that you have the privilege of being able to talk to. So set those things aside and ask yourself, for all those judgments, what am I missing? And then I'll give one more for now. As you are exchanging your perspectives, if you get to that place, Instead of asking why, why do you believe what you believe? Which even if you say it gently, can still come off aggressive in a context of suspicion and division. Why do you believe what you believe? If I suspect you, if you're on my other side on something I care about, that question is like, oh my gosh, I've got to defend myself. How do I justify myself so this person thinks I matter and will hear me at all? And so usually what people do, They're asked for their reasons, fine. They'll go and reach the reasons that others have taken shelter under, the reasons that have been viral on social media, the talking points, and then you'll end up in a proxy war. proxy wars don't get us anywhere. They really, really don't. They just spin us up, spin up our emotions and keep the divisions in place. So instead ask, how did you come to believe what you believe? And if you ask that, you're inviting people to share their story, which, hey, guess what? they're the world's preeminent expert on their own story. So you don't have to worry about that and they are taking you on a tour of their own experiences, you know? So if somebody if you have a conversation with someone about guns and you know, they disagree with you and they're just talking about the second amendment or they're talking about, you know, um the statistics about American mass shootings and how much more there are than other countries, that's one conversation. But if you have, if you add to that conversation things about, well, you know, I, I grew up like hunting with my dad and it was awesome. You know, and when the season yeah, opened, opened, opened in Michigan, it was fantastic. It was really great. um, Or like, yeah, you know, my, my family and my community really values, you know, the ability to have some power um, when government can become tyrannical overnight. Like we, we just find that so important. Or, you know, you hear about someone being held up at gunpoint. Um, which a friend of mine, I once, we talked about guns and I had no idea he'd been mugged. He'd been mugged. (laughs) That'll, that'll affect how you think about guns. So when people are able to tell their story and you're able to hear that something really incredible happens, trust begins to be built. You know, when you hear about somebody's struggle, you can't, you can't reject the reality and validity of the experience. You can still reject the political conclusions. That's fine. But you've built a connection off of sharing the experience. And that can make a world of difference in how productive that conversation can be.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I am. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting with that. I, I, you know, I had said earlier I had wanted to come back to the abortion piece. Um, and I think for, for your parents, obviously, for example, um, for many people, kind of in my, uh, social circle, as. As like an evangelical Christian, although we don't really consider ourselves evangelical. But anyways, um, you know, a lot of folk in our circle, um I think right, that, that abortion conversation ultimately comes down to valuing life. But where I have where I have challenged folk sometimes is I've said, okay, but life is valuable both inside of the womb and outside of the womb so now let's talk about what practices right and, and so when it when when it comes to like some of these these um conversations I, I really love that idea of of how did you get there because is is it that you value life or is it that you've been told to be a christian you have to have this mm-hmm. perspective and it leaves out the value of life of people who are poor of immigrants of you know and so all of a sudden is it really about life or has someone found a way to to energize your group and make you part of this political movement mm-hmm. um and can always count on your vote based on this one issue mm-hmm. that I'll make a talking piece right um so so i think that idea of of that journey can you share uh you don't have to give you know necessarily anybody specific but when you've asked that question what are some of the the answers that you've gotten um, that that are really kind of given that background, what, how they've answered, well, I got to this place by this.
2: Yeah. Uh, one that I think a lot about because it revealed an assumption I didn't realize I had. A lot of us probably walk around going, I'm not dehumanizing anyone. I don't judge anyone out of turn. I'm a good person. I don't know what this is. This is all you being devils. I'm <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I did this really fascinating trip uh, from I took about 20 people in the Seattle area liberals down to a conservative rural agricultural county in Oregon called Sherman County it's a long story it's in the book and when we went it was all about making connections across not just the political divide but the urban rural divide and a bunch of others and as we got everyone kind of warmed up to what some of these conversations would be like. Um, Me and my co-founder at the time of the publication that organized this, but we did it in partnership with our friend Sandy from Sherman County, an agricultural agent who knew everyone and whose families had been there since the 1800s. We had designed all these exercises. And one of those exercises was, okay, go to different corners of the room depending on your vote. And so we had a corner for people who'd voted for Trump. This was back in 2017. Corner for people who'd voted for Trump. Corner for people who'd voted for Clinton corner for people who'd voted for a third party candidate, and then I guess a corner for people who didn't vote at all. And I thought to myself, No one's gonna stand there. <laughs> like, no one. And even if they didn't vote, they're gonna lie. They're gonna go to some of the other corners. And I looked up and there was a woman named Jessica, like standing in that corner of didn't vote. And and I was like, What? I came back, um I came back a couple of years later as I was researching the book to talk to folks just after the 2020 election. And I got the chance to really ask her and we went out like for, you know, there was like a winery, you know, in, in a nearby town and we were there. Um, and I asked her, how did you come to believe that you shouldn't vote? And wow, she told me, I mean, it was a long story but the pieces that, were, that really stay in my head, the, the, the moment that really stays in my head was how she could not sleep. At night. Like she could not sleep imagining voting for Clinton. She could not sleep imagining voting for Trump. So this idea that it's this apathy that leads people not to vote. You know, that's what I had. I had this assumption, it's just apathy. But for her, <laughs> it was that there's not so one. much. Yeah. She cares so much and she cannot. Yeah, she has problems with Trump. She has problems with Clinton. Um, she told me about her dad who was Democrat in like a conservative, you know, town. She told me about going to college, she told me about voting for Obama and then being disenchanted with the left, trying to go to the right, having no idea what they were talking about, just lost. And so it was, it completely blew my mind. And because she told me that story, I could just nod. I could go, yep, you know, and I could relate to experiences where I've been stuck and indecisive, not because I don't care, but because I care deeply Mm -hmm. um so that was that was really and then I imagine what would that conversation have been like if I just said why you know and then we would have had more like highfalutin philosophical conversation about the right to not vote and things like that and I would have been missing so much
0: awesome that's another I never thought of it that way because like you you know like I do (laughs) see it as apathy but yeah, that is quite the opposite. It's because you care so deeply that wherever you turn, you feel like it's not a good decision. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the future? I mean, in your from your experience, from your perspective, um, do you think that this polarization is gonna continue or or what do you think we're headed?
2: I think it's definitely gonna continue. Uh, I think some things are gonna get worse before they get better. I do have a weird optimistic lens over the whole thing, even the darkest pieces. I I think we all see that somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot more expression. You know, social media, the internet, the blogging days, all of that. And technology allowed us to connect beyond geographic bounds, to scale our thinking so it reaches lots of people. You know, all these industries were disrupted by it. But basically what it means is we can... We can hear more, and that has led to serious tensions and, you know, forces out there trying to change our overall culture so that more people can find themselves in the American fabric uh, as sort of groups that share interests. I mean, it's, to me, that's been awesome, but it's been really messy and sometimes really reckless, and it has stomped and steamrolled some folks. And, you know, sometimes some groups are on stage and others are not, right? So in the conservative framework, it's a lot of, wow, this society makes very little room for religion at all, right? But it's putting race and gender up on stage. And from the liberal point of view, it's 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 kind of the opposite. I, I see a society that's so traditional and so white, it makes no room for me. So I'm here to make sure that people of color are finding that room. And that is a healthy, wonderful tension, even though it has so many unhealthy parts. And even though it, it it too has led to our divisions, I see it as almost like we've been given this knowledge of ourselves that has made holding ourselves together so much more difficult. But when I look at American history, I see a nation that's never been defeated by that. It's been shaken, but never defeated, right? So the dream is, we will come back stronger when we find some kind of unity again, some kind of national, you know, set of values, and it's never gonna be perfect, of course not. But it's going to be a more perfect union. Of that I can be I am a hundred percent sure. It's going to be a more perfect union because of this expression and how resentful it's made us and how angry and how excited and all of these things. So I'm really excited about that. It's like it's like we're in an adolescent phase, you know, and so there's a lot of you just don't and slamming the doors, right? Like, that's well, where that's we are. Way to describe it our prefrontal, what
0: it is that helps us with decision making that hasn't developed yet for us.
1: That prefrontal cortex, yeah.
0: You know, I, I was thinking, sorry, Maurice. Well,
1: no, so go ahead. She's
0: okay. feeling very recently. I, I thought about because I know Italy elected its first female prime minister, um, but she's been compared to Trump. You know, and I'm like, oh, the Trump effect is like mm-hmm. taking on this global um stage. But you also have presidents like the one in Mexico. Do your parents keep up with, with the politics in Mexico at all? And if so, what are their what are what are their thoughts on AMLO right now? Yeah. He's like a socialist essentially.
2: A little bit. Um, and I, I only keep up a little bit. I'm a dual citizen and I always feel like I'm not doing my part on the Mexican citizen part, so I apologize to my fellow Latinos. Yeah. But the, the way that it comes up in our family a lot is that in my extended family in Mexico, you know, yeah, some, some strong feelings about AMLO being one way or the other and AMLO being a lot like Trump. And so they'll look at my parents and go, what's wrong with you? Like, you guys like Trump. You voted for Trump. You know, but look at... So what's, what's neat, I think, to Americans that I try to kind of get across a little bit is you can have a Trump for the left, too. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that, there, there's a style there. It's not really about the policies. And I think in America, we think it is, it's not about the policies. It's about the style. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) but it goes back to what you were saying, Maurice, right? That at these edges is the same dang thing, you know, people who want to kind of start over. And so, yeah, AMLO has a lot of trust uh, in, in Mexico um, among a lot of populations that are absolutely forgotten, I mean the socioeconomic class divide in Mexico is scary. you know, we yeah. think it's a big deal here. There's so much discrimination, racism is on another level like there's all this stuff um and so he's he's appealing to a part of society that really feels like it needs it needs some attention, but it's um anyway, so yeah, uh yeah that's that's about as much as I know. I don't keep yeah. up with the with the ins and outs. But but the, I guess the other thing is that we do call it sort of the Trump effect, right, from America. And, and, you know, of course, it's a very American, Americans have a very America-centric view of the world, but there are global dynamics that are not necessarily Trump-caused, you know? There's things right. that sort of gave rise all over the world at the same time to leaders maybe like him. And there's reasons that a lot of people trust leaders like him that we should be very mindful of um, and even give credit where credit is due, which I know is weird to think about if you're like me and you really don't like Trump. You know, that my conversations with my dad about why he trusts him have made me realize that in a lot of ways we've gotten into this default where trust has not been important and has just been taken for granted. And we need to solve that.
0: You know, Monica, as I hear you talk, like this is so powerful because even in this short conversation, even the credibility I'm not saying that you didn't have that but I feel like as a human being and as a person you know I see that you are willing to engage and see things from a multiple perspective like what that does to a person's credibility is Mm -hmm. tremendous too right like Mm -hmm. for you girl (laughs) (laughs) thank you you. it's like yeah that that is really awesome because it's, it's refreshing, I will say. It's very refreshing.
2: Thank you. I will say that it's taken a long time to be able sure. to say things like what I just said. I For a long time, I wouldn't say it because I thought it would ruin my credibility and people would abandon. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I think I think we're so afraid of each other that we don't realize that we recognize sort of integrity of thought when we see it. Maybe not on Twitter. <laughs> no. Maybe well, not there because well, the, the environment say, is so I, terrible. Sure
0: cancel culture myself within i know the conservatives love to push cancel culture but i hate it too
2: yeah Uh, uh, yeah yeah so we're we're coming to recognize
0: that i think that's why people also struggle to to show this side like how you were saying like you were really afraid at first and it took you a while to even sit and have these conversations Mm -hmm. i think there are more people that would do it on both sides it's just this idea of like if you publicly take a stance that does not align with liberal views or conservative views, you're essentially dismissed yep. or canceled depending on your platform. And that's really, really unfortunate.
1: Definitely. Monica, I, I wanted to ask you here, um, as, as we get ready to wrap things up, um, when you think about this idea of curiosity and, and engaging in conversations um, across a divide, are there any conversations that are still really challenging for you to have are there any particular things where you're like okay i'm going to prepare myself i know that this person maybe feels this particular way and it's something i feel really strongly about how do i make sure i remain curious and i'll, I'll say real quick lisette and i both served in a previous school district on our uh social justice league is what we called it but basically our diversity committee and um, our big theme was replacing judgment with curiosity. So so when, when we were preparing for this interview, that was kind of running through my mind as something that is now even further validated, right? Of like, really, before you make that judgment, mm-hmm. ask a question, right? Find out mm-hmm. more. That being said, there are definitely conversations that I still have a hard time having, <laughs> even though I've been trying to practice that mantra. What about for you?
2: Yeah, no, I, there's many conversations I have a hard time having. Um, but I want to give two answers to your question um, because I am sort of a unique, weird individual. Like I've, I've been a journalist for a long time and I took that as being, you know, uh, it's my job to understand somebody. And so I need to make myself into a vessel they can pour themselves into. That's how I know I'm doing my job well. Um, more recently in journalism, there's been... More, you know, debates about identity and how maybe journalists should not be called to do that so strongly, especially when the identities really clash in in really sensitive ways. And so who knows, right? Like, that's an open debate. But I've been surprised by so many people so many times um, that it's kind of been beaten out of me, uh, a lot of assumption making. Doesn't mean that the assumptions, I, that I always catch them in the act. I don't. I definitely don't. I gave a couple examples today. So so my answer is I want that taken with a grain of salt. Like, my answer is I have yet to think of the conversation I'm not willing to have. But but I'm not saying it'll be easy. It will be agonizing to have some of the conversations that come to mind. Like, agonizing. But, but I, I feel very strongly that those need to be had because the more we give up on those, the more that we fray our relationships the less resilience our society has to build trust across difference and then it all falls apart that's my <laughs> that's my apocalyptic scenario um but here here's what i would say for for anyone else pondering that question is that it is an extraordinarily personal decision there is no blanket prescription for anyone on this i cannot tell you how many times i get asked that you know so monica what is the what is the socially enforceable red line that we should all follow, right? If I'm gay, I shouldn't talk to this person. If I'm black or Latino, I shouldn't talk to a person. And and I, I refuse to give that red line, socially reinforceable for all people. But I will say this, that it is an individual choice. It depends on the relationship. It depends on your attachment to any identity that feels like it's under threat. It depends on your sense of security. And no, you do not need to explain or defend yourself on that. Like that's on you. That's that's you. That's you. Um, but, but I make the analogy to cooking. Heat in a conversation, you know, passion, anger. Heat is good. The question is whether it's cooking something or burning something. And no one outside of the conversation can tell you. Only you can know if it's burning a relationship, if it's burning your dignity, your sense of self-worth, get out. <laughs> get out. Or don't even start, you know? Um, but but I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. There's a wonderful bridge builder named John Powell who works at the Othering and Belonging Institute. And he talks about how a pastor came up to him and asked, so John, are you asking me to bridge with the devil? And John said, maybe don't start there, <laughs> you know? So his idea is small bridges, small bridges. You know, I've, I've noticed a lot of folks um, when I'm out there kind of assume something and they get all tense and so I go, you don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow and you see everybody just relax. You don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. You can make the short bridges. Talk to someone who disagrees with you a little bit. But what John says is after a while of making short bridges, you'll ask yourself, who are you calling the devil? Hmm. All
0: right. So um give you an opportunity, Monica. Can you let our listeners know where they could find a copy of your book? I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, so uh it's on all the booksellers, all the online booksellers, a bunch of bookstores, but Amazon independent, you know, booksellers as well. You can go to my website, moniguzman.com, uh, and there's links to the audiobook, to all kinds of things. Um, and you can subscribe to my newsletter. There's a lot going on on this curiosity train. So hop on board. It's nice. dramatic and bumpy.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. It's such an easy read, but it's also very thought-provoking. You took, a, I think, a very complex and difficult topic um, but wrote it in a way that it's just like, I couldn't put it down. So Yay. thank you so much for this, this work. And Maurice, do you want to add anything before we uh, sign
1: off? No, uh, just our, our normal tradition, uh, Monica, it, it is simply this. If there's one thing that you want our listeners to walk away with today, um, they've made it here to the end of the episode And if, or maybe they fast forwarded here, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) if there's one thing you want them to walk away with today, what would that be? And then we'll close out.
2: Yeah. Stay curious. We're so divided. We're blinded. And in order to see the world clearly, we have to stay curious and ask ourselves what we're missing and ask one more question before sharing our opinion and be brave enough to cross some bridges, even if they seem real hard.
1: Awesome. I love it.
2: For Black
1: Brown and Bilingue, I'm Lisette Jacobson. And I'm Maurice McDavid. <laughs> Muchas gracias for tuning in. Adios. Muchas gracias. Adios. If you liked this episode, don't forget we got shorts too. Like not that we're wearing them, but the videos, shorts.